What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Disciple Makers Podcast. I'm Dave Stovall. I'm your host, and I'm glad that you clicked on this episode today because you're in for a real treat. Bobby is interviewing Elisa Childers about her new book called Another Gospel. Elisa is an author. She also has an awesome podcast, a website, and she's also a former Christian music artist like myself. I've actually got a lot in common with her and, and really appreciate what she's doing because I am an ex-progressive Christian. I've, I've walked away from progressive Christianity and back to historic Christianity. So the tools and the resources that Elisa gives her listeners and readers have been super helpful for me. And so Bobby brought her on the show to talk about the new book, and they just talked through personal stories about coming to Christ and what it looks like to deconstruct and to wrestle with doubt, um, but not walk away from faith. So I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. So this is Bobby Harrington and Elisa Childers. Here we go. Welcome, everyone. I'm Bobby Harrington, and I have the privilege of being the point leader of discipleship.org. And I'm super excited about my guest today, and I'd like to welcome Lisa Childers. Hi, Bobby. Thanks for having me. Well, really grateful to have you today on a bunch of different levels. Um, As we begin, I just want everybody to know that we're going to be focused on a book of yours that recently came out that I have in my hands here, and it's entitled Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. And uh, I wholeheartedly endorse this book and want to encourage people to uh, to go ahead and purchase it and use it, especially in discipling relationships. So let me set the table of why I think this is so important today. At discipleship.org, we advocate for Jesus-style disciple-making. And the short version of that means that we really believe that Jesus modeled the best way to help people to trust and follow him. And that way we sum up in three words, intentional, relational, formation. What that means is that we uh, are very intentional that we want to help people to come to faith in Jesus and then grow as disciples of Jesus. And the way Jesus showed us how to do that is relationships that are undergirded with Uh, his kind of love, Jesus-style love, which is basically cross-shaped actions to benefit others and glorify God. And then the goal, the goal uh, of all discipling is always built around two things. It's helping people to come to faith in Jesus and find salvation, and then helping people to grow up in the ways of Jesus and become more and more like him. So you might be thinking, well, okay, uh, here's this lady, Elisa Childers, with this book on the gospel. How does that tie in? And uh, I'm going to say this and then ask Elisa to jump in and tell us her story, uh, at least her story in brief, because her story is the backdrop of this book. But let me just say it this way. We live in a time where the foundations of our culture uh, are crumbling, the foundations of many faith traditions Christian faith traditions are crumbling. Uh, I I personally believe evangelical Christianity in many ways is in crisis. And so a lot of people involved in discipling relationships need really good tools. And Elisa is providing great tools, not just with her book, 
but with her blogs and her podcast. So as you think of discipling people and walking with them uh, in a relationship uh, where you love them, Elisa is the kind of person who's providing great tools uh, for the cultural moment in which we live. So Lisa, would you begin by just giving us the backdrop to the book, which is uh, basically uh, your story and your experience? Yeah, thanks for that. So the book walks the reader through basically a crisis of faith I had a little over 10 years ago. And essentially, you know, the quick version is that I grew up in the church. I loved Jesus as far back as I can remember. Uh, loved the Bible. I knew that even as a very young child, I recognized that the Bible was the Word of God, and I read it voraciously, um, which I didn't realize was a bit unusual as a you know nine, ten, eleven year old. Uh, but you know, I did my best to live my life by that book. Not that everything was always perfect, of course, but I was just I was that kid that you would look at in the youth group. I was that kid that was always on fire for God, the one that was always evangelizing and going on the mission trips and leading the the campus prayers and and all of that kind of stuff. And I never, ever, ever dreamed that I would go through a time of doubt. Uh, really, my doubt was mostly intellectual. And so it was actually as an adult, uh, I, I had spent about seven or eight years as a part of the Christ, contemporary Christian music industry, and which kind of comes with its own sort of baggage. And I think there were things about that that made me vulnerable to this. But Essentially, I, my husband and I started attending a local church, and after about eight months, the pastor invited me to be a part of a small study group that um, it was in the context of that small, very exclusive and very secretive, really, class that the pastor admitted to us that he was agnostic and that he, he was basically in a process of deconstruction, which we're seeing so much that word and that phenomenon in our social media news feeds, and we can talk about that uh, as well. But um, so when he said, you know, we're going to come and we're going to study the word, we're going to study Christianity, I was really excited because I thought, hey, if we're going to talk about the reliability of the Bible, I'm going to learn why I can trust my Bible. But it was actually the opposite. So if we if we tackled a topic like biblical reliability, it was all of the skeptical sources. It was the, the things that would actually tear down your belief in the reliability of the Bible. So throughout the course of the four or five months that I was in the class, everything I believed for my whole life was sort of put on this intellectual chopping block. And it threw me into a crisis of faith that um, I, I believe there was a bit of doubt and some deconstruction. And essentially God used apologetics to uh, help sort of reconstruct my faith from there. And so it's just a thrill to today be able to help other people that might be going through the same kind of thing just through the journey that I went through. Okay, great. So, um, there are some people who will definitely be able to point to their pastors as kind of leading them like you were led. Um, by the way, um, you're the pastor that you're talking about, and we'll keep his name uh, confidential just because it's not a, a benefit to bring him up. I don't know if you know this. I, I don't know if I ever told you, but he's my, he was my neighbor. He literally lived four doors down from me. I didn't know that. I mean, I yeah. knew I know knew you knew him, but I didn't know that you were neighbors. Yeah. Yeah, and it's so interesting when I look back after reading your book, uh, how he played coy with me, because my wife and I would often get with him and talk to him about stuff, and he would play coy with me. He didn't actually want me to know 
what he actually believed until he, he eventually was, all came out. Exactly. And that, but that's exactly his tactic with everyone. It was only within this very small class that he, and, and it, it was amazing when people would maybe have a red flag or something, the way he could use words and uh, to really manipulate what they thought he actually believed. He was very good at using doublespeak and redefining words and sort of getting out of sticky situations without really revealing what his true beliefs were. In fact, in the class, he would say, should I tell people my true beliefs? This was a discussion that actually happened. And so you're, you're definitely, you know, right that the playing coy was definitely part of the part of the game there. Yeah, it was actually really, it's really sad, the whole story, because, uh, you know, I know people personally impacted like yourself by the larger story, and it's really tragic and sad. But mm -hmm. out of the ashes of something like that, your story is such an encouragement to me and, and to so many others. So let's let's talk about it, if we can, just a little bit further. Lisa, can you help us to understand, uh, after spending all this time on these things as you have, what's going on with these pastors or bloggers or youth ministers or all of these people who are very numerous now uh, who are deconstructing and uh, walking through something what you uh, at least you didn't walk through so much yourself as much as you sat at the feet of somebody going through it and you had to learn how to respond what what's going on why is that happening i think there are a lot of different reasons uh depending on you know, who, who it is and what their reason for deconstructing is. And in my book, I talk about some common reasons, some common things we see when we look at the deconstruction stories, what we see actually happening. And very often, we have to understand that people who are deconstructing, they're deconstructing their evangelical Christianity. So aggressive Christianity and this whole phenomenon of deconstruction, these are people who grew up in the evangelical church. And so often they, they maybe they encountered some spiritual abuse. Maybe they witnessed hypocrisy or hyper-legalism. Maybe they grew up in a Christian bubble and never were really exposed to other worldviews. And they didn't real they thought everybody else was just, you know, it's like us versus them or, or that kind of thing. So I think there are some reasons like that that might be based on that person not ever experiencing authentic and real Christianity. And so I think that can be one of the big the big things. But honestly, Bobby, the more I, I watch these deconstruction stories and I look at what's really going on, uh, the more it becomes evident that there's just this, this sort of, and this is not going to be a popular thing to say for everyone, but there's like this rebellion against yeah. who God is how he's revealed himself in the world and and what he says is good and morally good uh, and so that that moral issue is a huge one we see lots and lots in fact i would say i don't think i've seen a deconstruction story that didn't include the element of uh sexuality being a, a huge factor in, in what the bible teaches about sexuality rejecting that and and we see often there's this blog post about um the six pillars of deconstruction and that first pillar is the bible and i think that that is something a lot of people have a big problems with they can't reconcile maybe some of the things they see god doing in the old testament with what their idea of a good god would do and so as you can kind of see it's sort of based on the self it's based on my sense of morality what i think is good and true and i'm going to hold god to that standard and if he doesn't uh, meet my moral standard, 
then I'm going to reject that part of the Bible. And so I think that that there's a lot of even, again, I know this isn't popular to say, but it's sort of that that rebellion that we see in the Garden of Eden. It's like, I think my way's better. I think I can find a, a better way to do this. And, um, I, and I don't think people are always even aware that that's what's happening. Yeah. But I, I do think that's a big a big uh, reason that we see that it happening. Yeah. So when people are deconstructing, uh, there's this sort of rebellion that you're talking about oftentimes to either the abuse of relational context uh, of, uh, of the faith that they've experienced or can be the uh, overstatements of mm -hmm. more of a legalistic uh, uh, framework. Um, but the people who are deconstructing, they seem to have this evangelistic zeal. Mm -hmm. Help me to understand that. Yeah, that's the that's the thing, isn't it? We see it's almost like a new religion. And I've been starting to characterize it this way because that's what it appears to be. If you go on Instagram and you search the hashtag deconstruction, you're you're not gonna find a bunch of posts of people lamenting that they're losing their faith, like, oh, this is this is disorienting. And now you will see people say this is very difficult and it's it's terrifying even. But overall, it's presented as this very good thing. This is something that everybody needs to walk through. They need to go through. They need to deconstruct the Christianity that they grew up with. In fact, you'll even see therapists offering services. Let me help you deconstruct. There's a website called The Liturgist that has 24-7 hang rooms, you know, where you can online hang rooms where you can go in and you can deconstruct your faith with someone and they'll be there to help walk you through it. And what we often see is that people will deconstruct and then immediately, I mean, within a week or two, they start a platform telling everyone how to live with all of these really moralistic dogmas about be kind, be compassionate. Uh, and it's it's puzzling at first because you, you think, why, you know, if it, I feel like if I lost my faith and I don't know exactly what I would do, but I suspect that I would probably just go away quietly and not really want to influence anyone else just in case I'm wrong. But that's not what we see. We see um, a, an extreme confidence in the fact that they believe Christianity is false and that it's untrue and that it's bad, actually morally bad and bad for culture, bad for society, bad for humans. And so there becomes, like you said, this evangelistic zeal to uh, show people a different way. Yeah. No, I'm I'm seeing the same thing. It's it's uh, uh, there are spiritual dimensions like what what you've just described. Um, there is this almost, um, and as you said, for some people they may not like this, but I I just want to try to frame things from a biblical worldview. A demonic influence, a strong demonic influence. Yes, for sure. So um, the backstory to me is the breakdown of the judo-christian worldview and its reflection and you mentioned evangelicals uh is it not also true that in catholic or orthodox uh traditions there's also deconstructing going on yes and i'm glad you brought that up because um the reason i tend to focus on the evangelical side of things is because that's what i grew up in and that's largely where we're seeing progressive christianity manifest itself. But yes, Catholics have their progressives and Orthodox have their progressives as well. I know of Orthodox believers who are 
fighting against the progressive sort of stream in their tradition and Catholics as well. I know some faithful Catholics who are just saying, guys, like we, we have this problem too. So yeah, it's definitely happening in, in all of those uh, traditions for sure. Well, let, let me bring up the one that I didn't mention. So if you think of, and I'm going to be overly categorizing here, so let me just acknowledge that up front. But as we think of, you've got the evangelical Protestants, you've got the Orthodox, you've got the uh, Roman Catholics. There's a fourth category, which would be mainline denominations. Mm -hmm. Now, talk to us about how all that's playing out with the mainline denominations. Yeah, that's a really good question. And so a lot of progressive Christians go to mainline churches. There aren't very many just exclusively progressive Christian churches. There are some, certainly, that are just, we are a progressive Christian church. But largely speaking, from my observations, progressive Christians will go to mainline Protestant denominations. And of course, we see those in decline right now, uh, which puzzled me for the longest time because I thought, well, you know, because of course, mainline denominations are going to adopt that theological liberalism that we saw so much at the turn of the century, and it's how we got evangelicalism in the first place. And so, you know, we see we see that happening, and the decline. And I was like, wait a second, it's not in decline. I mean, I'm seeing this everywhere. But I think um, I, I I saw it kind of like you know, you see that theological liberalism almost like parasitic in nature. Yeah, yeah. And so it's kind of burned its way through the mainline Protestant denominations, it's looking for a new host. And yes. So now it's coming into the evangelical church. But yes. It's very much progressive Christianity and what we see in the mainlines are very similar. And I think the only yes. main difference would be that progressive Christianity sort of adds that postmodern ethic, that, that relativistic sort of postmodern mood to the theological liberalism. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's it, essentially belief-wise, there's not much difference between what you're going to find in a mainline church and with a progressive Christian. Yeah, I, th I think that that's a really fair comment. One of the things that I have found in, in my discussions, uh, and I want to talk about in just a second, here, I want to get to specific, like walking people through all of this, but I think it's important to start big picture here. Because uh, typically when somebody is moving out of a more evangelical framework, what they think they're doing, at least initially, is they're making Christianity more appealing to the you know, contemporary mindset. Uh, they think they're creating this on-ramp to the faith when in fact it becomes an exit ramp. Mm by which people leave the faith. Just a little bit of context where I'm coming from personally. So I did not grow up uh, as a believer in Jesus. Uh, I was a student at the University of Calgary in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, my hometown. Uh, my French professor actually discipled me and uh, I became a follower of Jesus. But in Canada, uh, I witnessed all around me this massive apostasy from when I was in elementary school uh, you know, every uh, kid in a Canadian school would say the Lord's Prayer every day. Mm. Uh, and in um, in the 60s, church attendance in Canada, like the early 60s, late 50s, was like 65% of the population regularly went to church, way higher than the U.S. Well, you just watch a steep decline that was uh, just precipitous throughout Canada. And what it was is Canadians early on embraced progressive Christianity. 
They mm-hmm. didn't call it that then, but right. that's what they were doing. And so many people today, I'm surrounded by people today who are just so proud of how they're throwing off the shackles of their evangelical upbringings. And they think that they're making something more appealing when in fact they're, they're abandoning true orthodoxy for something that doesn't last. All, all mainline progressive churches are dying in terms of uh, persuading their children. All is an overstatement. But by and large, mm-hmm. they're, they're just dying because they can't breed conviction in their own children. They don't win people over to Jesus from other. They have that's to right. cannibalize. They have to that's cannibalize right. believers of other traditions. That's, and that's partly yes. what's going on. They, they don't have an audience otherwise. That's such a good point, Bobby. That is exactly what's happening. It's, 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 not, it's dying because it doesn't reproduce. Right. It can only cannibalize, as you said, because you don't see Buddhists, Hindus, atheists coming to progressive Christianity and saying, hey, I think this is true. I'm going to convert. Why would they? Yeah. It's not offering them anything that they don't already have except it just adds this Jesus element. Well, why would they want that if they can just do whatever they want anyway? Yeah. And so it, you're right. I think that that that's a great word. It's like this cannibalistic sort of um, if there is any evangelism, it's just happening within people who've already grown up in the church and had a bad experience or had something about it they didn't like. And then they can go over to progressive Christianity and still have that sentimental connection to Christianity and to Jesus. But there's really no, nothing that they're being, no standard they're being held to essentially, I think. I want to take a quick break and tell you about something cool happening over at discipleship.org. It's our discipleship.org collective. It's an online community for disciples and disciple makers. And if you fit in either one of those categories, then the collective is designed just for you. The website itself is super cool because it's basically like stepping into a virtual church building with a welcome center an auditorium for our main events and even classrooms. Right now, you can get free access to this collective with all of its webinars, seminars, ebooks, and even disciple making assessments for you personally or for your whole church. And this is a community, so you can also have the opportunity to connect with other disciple makers. And while membership is free, there's also a premium access option, which includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So head on over to discipleship.org slash collective and sign up for your free membership today. So I want to transition, if we can, just for a second to talk about helping individuals. And uh, I'd like to uh, share with you a contrast that I think is important today uh, because I think that uh, the way we're functioning as churches today is going to create a problem with us responding to progressive Christianity. And a a little while later, let's talk about how it's evolving and and growing and and changing. But when you look at the average church today, the church is going to try to gather people on Sundays, and then it'll have some things outside Sundays, but Sundays, Sunday programming, maybe a Saturday night service, A weekend programming is what people are going to rely on. And uh, I want to say that methodologically, we have a problem. 
that we're going to try to resolve, resolve the problems. Say if you're a pastor or minister, you want to resolve the problem uh, in probably a, a very ineffective uh, model or method. So let me share with you uh, a contrast that we hold to here at discipleship.org. On the screen, I have a picture of modern disciple making. And uh, we just picked four words, your typical church, you want to gather people on the weekends, and then you hope they can grow, give, and ultimately they'll, they'll go and make disciples. And uh, on the right-hand side is a contrast with Jesus-style disciple-making. By the way, I have a great description of it, and this is what I tell people today. I say, um, start small, go deep, but mm. think big. Mm. And so what you see Jesus doing is he spent three and a half years primarily focused on 12, intensely focused on three, to a, um, a lesser extent, but still significant, the 70. And then, of course, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, as you point out in your book, you've got the 500. Um, but Jesus' method was really built on uh, what I've described as intentional relational formation. So if we can assume for a second that uh, a lot of pastors are going to try the, the, the big approach, um, which is, I can, I can just tell you, as a guy who's a lead pastor of a church, Sunday mornings, it's hard to get in-depth on some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're, we really need to encourage people to engage in the, the kind of discipling relationships on the right. Now, I don't think that they have to pick one or the other. I think really we, we, most of us are going to have churches that do both. My advocacy uh, is that we really emphasize Jesus-style disciple-making as part of what churches do. So with that model in mind, Lisa, if I'm walking with somebody who's really intrigued by progressive Christianity, uh, can you tell me some, some first steps that, that uh, you would take just in terms of uh, helping them in the context of this relationship with these concepts? I think the first, the, the very first thing that we have to do, if we have somebody who may be enticed by this stuff or maybe a little bit deceived by it, is diagnosis, I think, is the first and most important thing. We have to, we have to figure out what's causing that to happen. And part of that's going to be, as I've heard you talk about, um, and I've talked about with Dave Stovall and your relationship, kind of discipling him back from progressive Christianity, you discerned a teachability in him. And I think that that's really, that's a really important part of that first diagnostic step is there are people who all they're interested in, they, they're already out the door and now they're just looking for justification for yes. it. And I'm not sure how fruitful that's going to be to try to engage that. Uh, can, can I just uh, yes, please. punctuate what you're saying right now? One of the most important lessons in discipling relationships that people have been doing it for a while uh, come to, but it takes sometimes, like I'll use myself as an example, it took me way too long to learn exactly what you're describing is that you've got to invest in people with, with the right kinds of hearts. Even Jesus, um, when you look at how Jesus discipled people, uh, if you take a, a larger, more nuanced view of the chronology of the life of Jesus, before he invited uh, Peter, James, and John 
into a discipling relationship with him. If you go back to John chapter one, which which was describing what happened right after the baptism at the Jordan, Jesus entered into a relationship with them. And uh, as best we can tell from the chronology, at least it spent at least nine months with them before um, it's described in Matthew chapter four, that he says to them, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Uh, and then he doesn't pick the 12 until he spent the entire night in prayer. And so there was a discerning process. So I just mm -hmm. grateful that you brought that up. And I want to just say how important that is in discipling relationships. Okay, keep going. It's really important. And, and I'll just add this one thing and then move on. But, you know, I've known people who would ask a question and you answer the question and then they just re-ask the question a different way. And then you try to I, I this happened with me with somebody and they had been through a really intense period of spiritual abuse very legitimate spiritual abuse and i they were already they they were on their way out the door and they really didn't want the answer and so i didn't realize this i went five times with you know they just kept rephrasing the question in a different way and i kept trying to rephrase the answer in a different way it finally occurred to me they're not interested in the answer they're they're wanting to find the one hole in the answer so that they can justify moving further into mm -hmm. their deconstruction process. So that's definitely, you know, don't spend a lot of time on on people who are not interested in answers. Like we that that's that would be my first advice. And then the second thing, and this is still part of the diagnostic portion of it, is to try to figure out the why behind why are they enticed by this? Why are they sort of deceived by this? Is there something, you know, did they have um, a, maybe a significant period of suffering in their life that uh, led them to question the goodness of God? And we need to consider those things because in, in those kinds of cases, just simply giving an apologetic answer is not going to do anything for them. They need to know before God is true, they need to know that God is good, that God yeah. loves them. Yeah. So there's all sorts of things where we have to really be holistic in this. Um, Generally speaking, when I've listened to deconstruction stories, just giving an apologetic answer is not helpful. It's just not what they're interested in. There's so many more questions going on um, regarding why they're doubting a particular thing. So I think that would be that diagnosis is so important because if somebody is is got this open bleeding wound and we just come in with, you know, rubbing alcohol of an answer, it's it's going to put them off you know and so so we need to sort of engage on that level but also i think a lot of people are afraid to engage because maybe they don't know a lot of apologetics maybe yeah. they don't know a lot of theology and and what i always tell people is that's okay in fact that's great go on a journey with this person you don't have to be a scholar you just have to be curious yeah you know there's so much great information and resources out there that it's perfectly fine if somebody asks you a tough question about christianity it's perfectly fine and sometimes even more helpful to just say you know i don't know that's that's a very challenging question um but i need to know that too so let's yeah. let's figure out what people have to say about it or what oh. the bible says about it and and go on that journey with the person and i think that can be so much more helpful than just throwing out dogmatic truth claims you know to try to you know plug the the hole in the in the system or something and i yeah. think that it's got to be holistic like that if you're really walking with somebody in your life through yeah. this and it's got to be genuine like um it's got a couple a confidence that even though there's problems here that God is good and that we know enough about his truth to be confident to know we'll be able to work these other things out and to be transparent. Like, um, yeah. 
you know, to admit our own questions, it helps other people to see, hey, I, I can I can walk with this person because they have questions too. Yeah. And I think that's where we have to understand there's a difference between what, say, Bobby, you and I might do uh, publicly where we're on a platform and we're giving a talk or making a video about, you know, why is this progressive Christian idea wrong? And then we're giving all these facts, we're giving information, we're, we're appealing to the scholars. What we're doing, well, and I, I'll speak for myself because you may have a slightly different angle, but my goal is to give Christians language and answers when they have red flags about it. Okay, what is going on? How do I answer this? That's my goal. Uh, when I make YouTube videos, I'm not actually, the purpose of that isn't to walk with someone through their own, you know, deconstruction right. process. So there's going to be a different approach yeah. in person than there would be, you know, maybe I might take a stronger approach when I'm making a video, but if I'm walking yeah. with somebody, I'm going to I'm going to feel them out. I'm not going to try to overwhelm them with too much information. It's going to be totally different. That's exactly what Jesus did. What you just described is exactly what Jesus did too, right? I mean, you can yeah. tell when when with the disciples at so many points they just don't get it. And mm -hmm. he just walks with them and and he's in relationship with them and uh, that, that i think that that's uh, super important one of the things i want to say is that i think your book could be a great thing to read with some people that you're discipling one of the things that uh, we encourage people to do is to set up um, some structure in your discipling relationships there's a lot of things that are organic and, and uh, you're complimentary of my relationship with Dave Stovall. And, and uh, one of the things that we'll um, mention is that the podcast that you do, and, and uh, we sent the podcast out to everybody in the uh, discipleship.org uh, newsletter uh, that just kind of described it. And it's, it's um, this combination when you're discipling somebody of spontaneity, uh, with intentionality. Um, one of the things I often tease our staff is I say, is, was Jesus intentionally organic or was he organically intentional? And it's, uh, it's one of those questions that mm. like, there's no answer because both are true, is that we have to have some structure and some relationship. So when I say that, uh, I just want to commend that your book would be a great book that if it's a group of uh, three, uh, which tends to be the best kind of discipling or even a small group to just walk through a book like this because Elisa, I think you do a really good job of in the in the sense of your own narrative of bringing up the key issues, the mindset and the discussions that come out. So uh, you know again, hats off to you with that. Um, let's move to this next part and that is, if you had to describe the key elements in what not to deconstruct and what to construct or reconstruct, mm. in other words, let's talk about core things here. What should people focus on? Okay, so this is a good question, and I think it's going to require some definitions. So it deconstruction the way I see it happening in people's lives is not, is not something I think people should be doing. So you'll hear people talk about deconstruction, like, you know, it's okay to deconstruct because you can reconstruct, you know, good 
solid faith. Uh, I think that deconstruction, if you go all the way back even to the 60s and you have the French philosopher Jacques Derrida, kind of that father of deconstruction, it all has to do with redefining words. It has to do with, uh, he didn't believe that um, singular meanings could be assigned to words. And, um, and, and I think, you know, people might argue with me on this, but I see that foundation under the deconstruction movement. Yeah. And so I think that I'd prefer to use the word honest doubt. I think honest doubt is what people mean sometimes when they use the word deconstruction. Because if you go through deconstruction, there's really not reconstruction that happens, uh, typically speaking. Now, I always say, you know, as, as a part of my story, I did go through some deconstruction. I say some because I didn't deconstruct all the way into atheism. I never lost my faith. But all of those doctrines that I had held so dear were, were being you know, put, put away from me. I didn't have them in my hands anymore. Yeah. And that's different than doubt. Doubt is when you have questions and you might even pick apart the things that you believe and make sure what you believe is true and anything that's not true, you know, get rid of it. So, you know, I can, I can understand when people are using the word deconstruction in a positive way. For example, deconstruct your cultural Christianity. I think that's fine. Deconstruct the culture you grew up in. Deconstruct some of the things that weren't biblical. But when people sort of say, you know, what should we deconstruct? What shouldn't we? I think it just, I think we should just leave deconstruction aside and look at it as honest doubt. And so I think that, yeah, like I said, you know, if you grew up in a culture that taught unbiblical things or hyper-legalism or something like that, we do need to doubt that stuff. And we need to compare that with scripture and compare that with the evidence we see in creation for the existence of God and the truthfulness of Christianity. And we need to plant our feet on what's true. Uh, but so often all the doctrines, and this is something we see in progressive Christianity a lot, is there's no differentiation between core essential yeah. doctrines, what might be secondary or um, not, not that they're not important, but, but not essential for your salvation. All the doctrines are put on the same level in yes. progressive Christianity. Yes. And so it's like the whole thing gets thrown out or the whole thing gets accepted. But the problem with that is that somebody could have grown up being told that you have to wear, you know, a green hat to be a Christian and yeah. the lump, you know, I mean, that's of course an exaggeration to make a point, but for the deconstruction movement, they'll throw that in with, you know, the the atonement, and they'll yeah. throw the whole thing out. And really, what we should be doing is parsing between what's actually true and biblical, and what was added or, you know, emphasized by the group we grew up with. Yeah, that is so good. In just a second, I want to show a diagram that you and I talked about before the webinar began. But before I do that, I I want to um, just state something that I think is true. Um, that um, I spent in the mid uh, 80s, I spent some time uh, at the University of Calgary uh, in a philosophy department uh, with a guy who's an expert in how we know what we know, which is called epistemology. And one of the things that he really helped us all to see is that um, the, the modern era, which uh, a lot of people label from the French Revolution till the fall of the Berlin Wall, that the modern era tended to emphasize certainty. And the way that that worked out is the, the more you know, the more you can be certain. And, uh, uh, you know, really an aspiration for certainty on a lot of things. The way that that translated culturally is a lot of Protestant denominations were formed with tremendous certainty around uh, aspects of doctrine 
that were not central, but they made them central. So, yeah. for example, a few years ago, uh, uh, I was in a church context, and uh, one of the elders was telling me how they were against movies and how movies were terrible. But then everybody started watching TV, and they had to give up on the idea that movies were terrible. Mm. Or, or another guy that uh, that I know who, um, you know, uh, just this rigidity that you're not really a Christian if you do these things because the Bible clearly teaches it. And a lot of denominations develop their identity around these these uh, what I'm going to call third level issues, and so that people growing up in those traditions. They they were set up for a lot of problems, like you said, because everything was a 10 out of 10. Mm-hmm. So let me share this diagram that uh, uh, we commend to people because it delineates between elements that are essential, and then it adds a category that is often not added. So uh, let me just give you the background. Robertus Meldinius, who was a friend of Martin Luther, used to say, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity or love. And the problem with that is that it only gave two categories. Mm. Either it's essential or it's just opinion. And so what happened is, at least up until, you know, this, uh, I'd say up until 30 years ago, uh, people tended to be okay that there were a lot of things they almost communicated as essential. They wanted to be loving and, and the, the other things weren't, but they overstated it. Now what's happening, I find more and more, uh, is that people who are so fuzzy in their thinking, it's like, well, if it's not essential, it doesn't matter. And the essentials are so small, focused around the gospel, that every other doctrine doesn't really matter. It's just personal opinion. And uh, there are things that are important that may not determine your eternal destiny, that'll, but will it determine the health of your Christianity? So uh, I want to get your reaction to this, but let me, let me summarize one way uh, that people could understand this diagram of essential elements, important elements, and personal elements is some things are written in blood, some things are written in ink, and some things are written in pencil. Mm. Um, can you can you react to this um, framework, uh, Elisa, in terms of uh, discipling people and the things that you advocate, especially around the gospel? Yeah, and I think this is this is the key question, right? Is is what's essential? And when I was writing my book, I actually Googled that question: What are the essential beliefs of Christianity? And several different articles popped up. All of them had different lists different numbers of doctrines that they believed were essential. And uh, it was it was just very confusing to think, okay, so what are the key essentials and how do we think about those things? And so I like that you have this sort of parsed out into three sort of uh, three sort of arenas here where we have the essential elements like this is going to determine if you're really a Christian or not. And so I've heard another person put it like if we can argue about it in heaven, then it's not a core essential for salvation. But that doesn't mean that it's not important. There are doctrines that are, I mean, crucially important that, uh, that may not, you know, you might be unaware of, or you might have a different opinion on, and you can still be saved. Um, But I really like the way uh, there's a scholar, Norm Geisler, who 
he did this whole study on essentials and he looked at all the creeds and he looked at the biblical data, he looked throughout church history. And, and I kind of follow what he did on this because I think it's really good. But he says, in the category of essential, there are beliefs that you would have to hold. I'm a sinner, Jesus is my savior, the resurrection, things that, that you would have to at least implicitly believe and affirm to call yourself in a meaningful sense a Christian. There are also doctrines in that core essential category that you would not necessarily have to believe, but they would be logically necessary. Meaning, uh, for example, the Trinity. You, you, of course, you know the thief on the cross didn't have a robust understanding of the Trinity, but had he survived and play, you know, continued to follow Jesus, he would have learned about the nature of God and he wouldn't have denied that. So there, I, I like the way Norm Geisler says, there are essentials that you could be unaware of and be yeah. saved, but you wouldn't deny them if you're really saved. That's good. And that's so good. that's sort of a, a broader category, but I, I like the way that's parsed because there are, I think, beliefs in that second category that could actually move you away from the gospel if you yes. have the wrong view of them. Yes. And so they're, they're not even a little bit unimportant, but they're right. very, very important and they can be, yeah. but, um, you know, we, but they're not, it's, you're, it's not going to keep you from heaven. Yeah. I would say. No, I think that that's really good. And, and it's really crucial today. Uh, I personally believe <clears throat> to help two sets of people, well, really everybody to uh, we've got to know what is essential. Like when you're discipling people, they really need to know uh, the hills that are worth dying on, the hills that are worth um, being seriously wounded, and then the hills that you know you're you're not gonna uh, fight too much about. Lisa, why is it that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for our sins tends to be something? that progressives really focus on? There's a few reasons for that. So it, it's, it's not happened in a vacuum. So first, for anybody that might be watching this that's unaware of what we're talking about, in progressive Christianity, pretty much across the board, what I've discovered is a rejection of substitutionary atonement. And especially when you add the nuance of penal substitutionary atonement. And, the, and it's usually based on a misunderstanding of what that doctrine actually teaches. But for the progressive, the idea that God the Father would require the blood sacrifice of his only son, that implicates the moral character of God, turning him into a cosmic child abuser. And so that's a very popular view in the progressive church. But that didn't happen in a vacuum. It didn't just start right there at the atonement. It goes all the way back to their view of, of anthropology. So if you go back to the Garden of Eden, um, they don't believe, generally speaking, of course, because there are a spectrum of beliefs in progressive Christianity. But I have found it to be generally consistent in that paradigm that they don't believe that sin is what separates human beings from God. So um, if you, the way they'll interpret the story of the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit and their eyes became opened, uh, their sinfulness didn't separate them from God, but their shame did. So any kind of separation that they perceived was self-imposed. They weren't really separated from God. They just became ashamed. And so the paradigm of salvation comes in the progressive view from just realizing 
how beloved you already are. And and you just have to realize that God loves you and that you're worthy and enough just as you are. That's how Rachel Hollis puts it. And so I think that um, if they don't believe that you meaningfully need atonement for your sin, then you can see why this whole idea of Jesus' blood needing to be shed for the cleansing of our sin can be quite horrific if they don't think that's necessary in the first place. And so it sort of goes back all the way to the beginning of how they understand creation and the fall and original sin that's informing their view of the atonement. Yeah, that's good. So uh, there's a couple of key questions I'd like us to get to. Let's start with this one. If I have a friend or uh, maybe in my home, you know, I have um, my my uh, children who are adults or maybe, you know, late teens or whatever, uh, and I'm seeing some uh, yellow flags about their, they're getting exposed to or they're attracted to progressivism. What are some things just by way of um, looking out for people that we need to look for and do? Well, I think that the best thing we can do is model an authentic faith because so often that's what progressives are railing against is, uh, you know, like we mentioned, hypocrisy or moral failings in the church, abuses, things like that. And in, in, I would say virtually every situation of my personal relationships where people have gotten sucked into progressive Christianity, they weren't, they didn't have the genuine faith modeled for them. And so they were rejecting the only form of Christianity that they knew. Mm -hmm. And I think that in my case, I know, of course, it was all the sovereignty of God and the Holy Spirit, but I know that one of those key elements in my life that sustained me through that process was the, the faith of my parents. Mm. Um, and which was, by the way, very imperfect. Yeah. And I think that's part of what was sustaining about it. I watched my parents fail and repent and fall and repent and model that for us. But with mm, this genuine true. faith to know that Jesus is the way, no matter what happens, no matter what prayer goes unanswered, no matter what you fail in, just keep coming back to Jesus because he's, he's your Lord. He's there for you. And so I think that because I wasn't given sort of this caricature of Christianity, I saw it, the real thing, um, it, it sustained me through that. Because I remember in class one day, the, the class I talk about in the book, um, just saying, you know, I, I'm not looking for an alternative. I, I want this to be true. This is beautiful to me. So, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly open to looking at what other people think about it, but I had no reason to want for Christianity to not be true. And I think so often what we see in progressive Christianity is they want it to not be true because of the experience they've had with it. Oh, that's good. Okay, so you're a mom and you have a couple of children who are just entering into their teenage years, if I understand it correctly. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the National Disciple Making Forum in November, we're so grateful that you're going to be one of our main stage speakers. Um, let me ask you a, a short version of what I hope you'll talk about more then. If I'm discipling my kids in their teenage years and they're, they're going to be in this brand new world where so many foundations are broken down and all that, what are some key things that I need to bear in mind and I need to do in discipling my teenage children? Mm. Well, you know, 
learning as I go, because, you know, like you said, that's the age my kids are. So, you know, all of this will bear itself out in time if, if I'm doing the right thing or not. But to the best of my ability, I think this is the right way to approach it, especially within the common understanding of tr the nature of truth and everything that, that our kids are finding themselves. And what we have to recognize is that kids are naturally much more skeptical than we ever were. So I use this example. When I was a kid and I read about Moses and the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, my question was, what was that like? You know, mm -hmm. when, you, when the water came up, could you see fish in the water? How dry was the land? Was it muddy? Did their feet sink in? I mean, those were my questions. When I first read that with my daughter, and she was about six, her question was, did that really happen? So there's this natural skepticism that they're being taught, just it's the air they breathe in their culture. And so I think it's incredibly important for Christian parents today to not react in fear. Kids need space. They need some space to work these things out for themselves. It's a totally different culture than it was when I was a kid where my mom would just tell me what the Bible said and I would accept that and live it. It's different now. We have to we have to give them a little more space. And so what I'll do with my my daughter who has this kind of skeptical nature is a I try to establish myself as the expert so that she'll come to me with her questions rather than Google as she grows up. And the way that we have to do that is we cannot ever react in fear. We mm. can't, you know, when our kids come to us with a question that terrifies me to my bones, I can't react in fear. In fact, I've trained myself to say, wow, what an insightful question. Mm, That's such a good, good question. I never thought of that question when I was your age. That's amazing. I like, I love the way your brain works. Compliment the question mm -hmm. so that they feel safe to come to you knowing mom's not going to freak out if I ask her, you know, if Abraham actually existed or something. And Again, kind of like we mentioned before, don't be afraid to say, I don't know. I yeah. don't know can be powerful, a powerful invitation to find out. And so with my daughter, I'll often ask her questions to get her thinking. And I've learned the hard way to not make my answers too long. Um, and I actually talked to her about this the other day. She asked me a, a question and I started talking. She goes, you know what? Never mind. And I said, wait a second. Are you, are you afraid I'm going to talk for a long time? She's like, yeah. And I said, all right, give me 10 seconds. And so she started doing this. And I just got, I said, just think about this. Think about it this way, this way, and I'm done. And so what I think I learned the hard way is get it, follow their lead a little bit. Now, there are intentional times, of course. We have de family devotions. We have family prayer time, intentional times where they are you know, expected to be present and involved. But throughout the day, take those opportunities, get in, get out quickly so the that they will come moment. back. Yes. And don't make it too long because if they think they're going to get a lecture, they're not going to ask you. <laughs> so that's so the you, best I got for right now. That's really good. Do you know the uh, ancient rabbinic story of uh, rabbis who would take too long to answer? And so they developed the habit of saying, Rabbi, could you please answer this question while you're standing on one foot? Oh, that's yes, yeah. And I can be long-winded if you haven't noticed. So, okay. Um, talk to us a little bit about how things have changed, even since you wrote the book. I mean, it's yeah. not even been a year that the book's been out, mm -hmm. and progressive Christianity is evolving. And uh, talk to us about that. Yeah, this is such an important question because when I first started writing the book. Um, 
Well, I purposely chose to analyze the movement purely theologically because there are massive political implications in the movement. There are cultural implications. I tried to stick just to theology because my main goal was to show people that progressive Christians aren't just a group of Christians that might see the world a little different or might be changing their mind on some political or social issues. This is a core fundamental gospel issue. So I chose to do that on purpose. But what I've noticed since the book even came out is this massive acceleration in the deconstruction movement. I've um, thought about even calling it deconstructianity because it's yeah. like the rite of passage is deconstruction. And even just in the last few months, I have seen so many sites, Instagram pages, Facebook pages, websites dedicated to deconstruction. That is a massive part of this movement. I've also seen an acceleration in the postmodern relativistic side of it. So whereas, you know, in the if you go back to the emergent movement with guys like Brian McLaren and Doug Paget and Tony Jones, they're still operating with the laws of logic. They're they're trying to make their case even biblically in in many cases. That's changed some. But uh, as I see now, when we see like these TikToks that go viral and these YouTube pages from progressive Christians that go viral, they're almost all just from this completely relativistic live my truth uh, kind of perspective. And I think that is where the movement's going. I think it's going to leave its uh, any rooting it had in trying to make their points biblically, any rooting that it had in in the laws of logic, I think that's all going away. And I think it's becoming entirely postmodern. It always had a postmodern element, yeah. um, but I think it's really going in that direction. So one of the ways that I frame that, um, just in my own understanding, is that um, as long as we believe that there was truth and that truth could be known, even people who rejected Christianity, your classic liberal, mm -hmm. uh, you could have conversations because you're That's talking right. about what's true or, or not. As we move away from, um, from a sense that we can know truth and have truth, it becomes we, we pick a narrative and then mm -hmm. we start imposing narratives. You and I have talked on previous podcasts on about critical theory and how that's influencing. It's just like people are picking a narrative mm -hmm. and they're saying my narrative's true. It's not like up for debate. It's just, here's my narrative. And yeah. uh, that that's a, um, that's a challenging environment. Mm -hmm. It is. Where we have to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Yeah, it's like nailing jello to a wall, I've heard people say. And it really is. It's very, very gushy and sticky, and it's hard to grab hold of. And uh, yeah. I just think, let me just say this, and I have... Uh, one last question and then one statement for you. Uh, but I just want to say this, and, and I know we both agree on this, that, you know, the real thing, like Christianity is the real thing. And let me tell you, no matter what narrative somebody has, what is always convicting, and that is a, a genuinely humble person who knows that they are a sinner, but who believes that God loves us and they try to live life, lives uh, or life in the case of an individual as a genuine follower of Jesus, full of love, uh, with humble truth, grace and truth, who engages in genuine relationships and just speaks the truth of the gospel in appropriate ways. Because ultimately, we want people to construct their lives around Jesus, mm -hmm. around his teachings, 
and around the hope of the death, burial, and resurrection that we too will uh, have our sins forgiven and that we too um, will we'll have the opportunity to have life that never ends where all of our dreams come true. So I think confidence about that is always super important. I agree. So here's my question for you. If you could say one thing to pastors today, and we do have a lot of pastors who are part of discipleship.org, if you could say one thing to them as they lead their churches right now in these realities, what would you say to them? Be bold. I would say be bold. You, I think that there is nothing, I, I think for pastors, and I say this so humbly, I respect just the incredibly difficult job that it is to be a pastor. Um, but I think that pastors need to be bold. They need to not worry about offending people. The Bible is going to offend people. It's like Paul said, we spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ and to those who are being saved, it smells like life. And to those who are perishing, it smells like death, but they spread the fragrance and it has a smell. The gospel has a smell. Truth has a smell. And some people are going to think it stinks. And some people are going to think it smells like a life and hope and healing. And we, we have to speak the truth and not worry about losing members we have to keep our focus on what's true. It's going to make people upset. It's going to make people mad. And of course, doing that in the most persuasive and winsome and loving way that we can in our own strength. But the message itself, there's no way to soften it enough to make it non-offensive. And so I think just to bear that in mind, to be bold, you're, you could lose staff members, you could lose mem church members. It's worth it if it's for the gospel. And keep your eyes on the sheep that you're discipling, the sheep that you're called to protect. That's right. from some of this stuff and and that would be my my word to pastors oh that's good just a minute ago i was flipping through your book trying to find uh toward the end of your book and uh, the chapter on uh, reconstruction you quoted dietrich bonhoeffer uh in, in his book the cost of discipleship and the cost of discipleship of course is our theme uh november 4th and 5th here in nashville with our, our gathering and uh he goes right along with what you're saying he describes it this way. Uh, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, uh, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. I love those words, and uh, I'm so grateful. Uh, for your partnership in these things and uh, in calling us to be disciples, true disciples, to ferret out what's maybe some of the accumulated baggage that is often misunderstood and to focus on Jesus, his cross, and being and making disciples. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for being with us. And uh, I'm just going to give you the last word if there's anything you want to add as we conclude. Well, thanks, Bobby. It's been great to be with you as always, and um, looking forward to the the uh, conference that will be together in November. And hope to see everybody there. And I guess the word I would just leave everyone with is just be encouraged and know that there's nothing God's asking us to do that He hasn't asked every generation of Christians before us to do. 
it looks different in each generation. The spirit of the age takes on a slightly different sort of form. It takes on a slightly different angle. But every generation of true Christians has had to stand against the spirit of their age. And in many cases, and especially globally, there's been a great cost for that. And we've been sort of protected here in America for a while, where we've been sort of allowed to to say a lot of things without much repercussions that may be changing. I don't know, but it's our turn to stand against yeah. the spirit of the age. And, and we have the same Holy Spirit that's been with the church for 2000 years. So it's, it, it's, it'll be all right. And I think that um, we all just need to keep our eyes on that. Lisa's book, Another Gospel, is available now. You can purchase it on Amazon, or you can go to a real-life bookstore like Barnes & Noble or Books A Million. You guys remember those? Like, real places you could walk inside and hold books with your bare hands and smell the coffee beans in the background? Man, I know where I'm going today. (laughs) Um, Anyways, I want to remind you before I sign off here, we do have a National Disciple Making Forum coming up November 4th and 5th this year, 2021. In Nashville, Tennessee, it's going to be an awesome time. So go over to discipleship.org. You can purchase your tickets now for yourself or for several others at your church if you want to come be a part of that. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.